Welcome to the Dementia Researcher podcast, brought to you by DementiaResearcher.nihr.ac.uk, a network for early career researchers. Hello, I'm Adam Smith, and today I'm hosting this special podcast recording from day one of the Alzheimer's Association International Conference, which this year is taking place in Los Angeles. So we've got a little bit of sun and um, for the next four days we're going to be making a podcast recording each day with uh, different people and uh, we're going to be discussing both their presentations, the main topics of the day and what they've seen and heard that's interested them. Um, So uh, we hope this will be particularly interesting for those that haven't managed to make it out to the conference but hopefully there'll also be something for those that have because there's so many things to see here you couldn't possibly take in everything so we, we hopefully even if you're attending here please please have a listen too. So today I'm joined by James Quinn from Boston. Um, <laughs> some of you will remember James recorded with us at the AAIC conference last year when you were in Manchester. Uh, so a bit of a big change for James which we'll come to in a minute. Uh, Sarah Gregory from Edinburgh who you've had a change of circumstances mm-hmm. since last year too yep. in a good way <laughs> and Claire Walton from uh, Alzheimer's Society who also slightly had a change in circumstances <laughs> this year uh, to be here. So thank you very much. Welcome to our panellists today. So if we can start by maybe a little round table, if you can introduce yourself and maybe talk a bit about your work. So mm-hmm. Sarah, do you want to go first? Yep. So I'm Sarah. I'm a part-time study coordinator at the University of Edinburgh, coordinating the EPAD and Prevent Studies. Um, and I have started a PhD um, at the end of last year, looking at stress in midlife as a risk factor for developing Alzheimer's disease later. So um, using Prevent and EPAD data to model risk factors for that at the moment. That's quite handy, having access to that data. Exactly, it's very particularly handy. Particularly just, just right there. Yeah. Perfect <laughs> midlife cohorts to be looking at. It was this work you were doing anyway, and exactly. somebody figured, hold on a second, I could get a PhD out mm-hmm. of my dear job. It all worked perfectly together. <laughs> Fantastic, thanks for joining us, Sarah. James? Yep, so I've recently moved to Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston, and we're looking at ways to basically look at developing new diagnostic biomarkers of Alzheimer's disease and other forms of dementia and kind of look into mechanisms of disease and also to look at potential therapeutic targets. So kind of similar to the work I was doing during my PhD, but much, much more relevant to patients. So we are seeing patients on a kind of day-to-day basis, well, my bosses, and we're trying to develop like personalised medicine-based approaches. So I'm finding it really fascinating over there. That's really exciting. And does that make you hot property as well? I mean, to, to go from Manchester to, to Harvard, right, it just must make, you must be, your mum must be really proud. I think my mum is very proud. I had my graduation on Friday and I think it was, a, yeah, I think they really enjoyed that. So, But is that, I don't know, um, it's a really good opportunity and I'm very kind of grateful. Fantastic. To no, that. really congratulations. Thank and you. it's nice to see some people going the other way, of course. We yeah. hope that we'll make a good case through this podcast to attract people from the US to want to come and work in the UK as well. Oh, post you know post Brexit world. <laughs> <laughs> okay, thanks very much, James and um, Claire. Hi, yes, uh, I'm Claire Walton. I work at the Alzheimer's Society, so I do research communications. Um, I moved into that after doing a PhD in neuroscience and realizing I was much better at talking about science than actually doing it myself. Um, so I help the charity to communicate to generally the LA audience about what stuff we're funding but also what's going on in the world of research so that's why I'm here um, 
as Adam just mentioned, I just I have had a little change in that I just I came back like from maternity leave. <laughs> <laughs> um, so this is a really great conference for me to see like what's happened in the last year. You know, have things moved on? Um, you know, what, what's everyone excited about? What are they talking about? Um, and, and to take that back to, and is, to is my this, colleagues. Is this the first time you've been away for an extended period of time? From it your is, new... yeah. It's so the not... first time I've been away longer than a night. Oh, no. And the time difference makes it quite tricky as well. You can only talk after, like, four in the afternoon. Yeah, we've got, like, a webcam in her cot. And creepily last night I was just watching her sleep, which I know is really weird, but I was jet-lagged and I was like, oh, well, I'll see what she's doing. Stalking you. Oh, that's very, that's very yeah. sweet. And it's, it's great that you're here. And thank you very much to everybody that's, that's joined us today. So have you all, you've all acclimatised now. You've all, you all arrived... A few days ago, nobody just arrived this morning. Last night, I arrived. Last night, oh, that's pretty close. Yesterday, I'm yeah, feeling it definitely. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, Friday. Friday, yeah. Friday. So you've you've yeah. had the most time yeah. to adjust. Uh, yeah, I got here Friday too, just to have that little bit of time to to adjust. Fantastic. So we've had the opening morning. Uh, this was quite a, an exciting opening morning, uh, as ever. AIC's open with a bit of a bang, and today was. Uh, beatboxers, mm-hmm. wasn't it? Beatboxing fi- acapella. Uh, what more could you want? Yeah. Tunes that had California and Los Angeles in the title, yeah. which they were they were really good, weren't they? Yeah. I, the only disappointment was I really thought they were going to start rapping about amyloid. I was like, where are the science references in this rap? But didn't quite get there. They squeezed LA in the front. I have to admit to being a little bit distracted myself because, of course, the Cricket World Cup final um, with England and New Zealand was going on at exactly the same time, so I had my earphones in, if I'm honest. I was watching the Wimbledon. On my you were, well, with the Wimbledon final dragged <laughs> yeah. on as well, so, and you had the Grand Prix as well. So for those of us, uh, those of our listeners that are UK-based, um, I have to say it, w- it was a little bit exciting and a little bit distracting at the same time. I did manage to see, uh, was it, is it Harry Johns? Harry Johns' yes. talk at the start. He gave a really strong message of pointing out that it had been a hard year with, with the drug trial failures that we've seen, but not to be particularly disheartened. Um, although, of course, he singled out Biogen as being the, the one particularly disappointing one. And then, of course... Just last week, the Generations program out of uh, the Banner Institute, and who's is it Novartis, the partner on that one? That's also being cancelled now as well. Which is I haven't understood. I haven't learned why yet. Have you had any, Claire? You. I've only heard. I've kind of only heard through the grapevine that um, obviously futility, but actually that the people who were on the drug seem to be declining a little bit worse. Oh no! In the like preliminary analysis. Um, I don't know, you know, obviously yeah, there's course. been a few base inhibitors that have been terminated, so I don't know exactly, you know, which drug has shown which effects, but that's kind of the word on the street. Because, uh, I mean, I only know this through my work on joint dementia research, but that was a, a population of people that's been quite a hot, hot area for research recently because you had the... the um, you had the early study from Janssen looking in that same population of people recently that that stopped as well, and this try it's annoying than anything else. I suppose Claire, you must feel this being a uh, Claire, um, sorry Sarah, uh, being a trial coordinator because th- that study has taken at least two two and a half years to get set up in the UK. All those sites had to become genetic counsellors, and there was so much you know working around the ethics to do with that because of the genetic elements to it. For then it to be to, for the UK it took so long to get it going that it's cancelled then so soon after getting up and running mm-hmm. in the UK it must be so frustrating for those sites 
And with the patients. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm, uh, of course. Um, I think you have to try and take the good things out of it, that actually you've proven that you can do that genetic testing in the UK, you can disclose it to people, and it doesn't cause a lot of trauma to them. Yeah. So you can take a good learning from it. But yeah, as a coordinator who's had studies close, it's telling your participants is terrible, and then you have to kind of reevaluate it. And how you doing. how you tell them as well, that's yeah. important, isn't it? People finding out from the newspapers before yeah. the trials told them is, is awful. But I suppose, as you just rightly point out, there is some positives to take away from this, which Harry John makes a, a point of saying that the important, it, what's in, what we learn from failures is just as important as what we learn from successes. And sharing that data was a key theme that he wanted to mm -hmm. highlight to push back, I think, on so many academics as well about secrecy and journals about making sure this data is all public and accessible. Um, he also highlighted the importance of collaborations across diseases, which I know is a, we did a podcast on that. I feel like maybe we were ahead of the curve here. We did a podcast on that like a year ago where we had people from uh, Durham and Leeds who work in heart disease and other areas collaborating. So important there. And um, what else was he making the point about, about being non-political? Yeah. about not obviously if you've got to get your funding in from somewhere not aligning yourself too much politically and they got more funding as well didn't they mm -hmm. i can't remember already was it 420 or 42 million more every year anyway i i missed the details i think that was right when the cricket finished <laughs> and i was like oh there's just too many things <laughs> did anybody yeah <laughs> is there anything did i miss anything do you think from harry's bit there then Maria uh, Carrillo did her piece as well. Um, she spent a lot of time talking about that accelerating medicines partnership. I get a sense that you might be more in the note. Not, I'm not going to suddenly put you on the spot, Claire. But we've got stuff like that in the UK, haven't we? I can't. Rem sorry, I can't remember exactly what it was. A it was a industry partnership. Yeah, it was, and looking for early early drug. Um, targets and things like that wasn't it that's okay i, th I think worry. i think I, I missed the details of that one but um, I, I know that she i mean obviously you'd expect that she'd be ahead of the curve but you, she pointed out that she thought the strong topics for this week were going to be around dna damage stress granules stress granules sounds like <laughs> something you can wash away you know put in your washing machine <laughs> she did say granules right yeah i think her i think her point was you know really acknowledging the failures that we've had and, and saying, you know, the community's a bit downhearted at the moment, but there's loads of really emerging areas and, and highlighting the ones that the conference has chosen to, to pick out. You know, I don't know how they, they choose some over, over others, but I've not heard about stress granules yet, so I'm, I'm really excited to go and find out why they seem to be a hot topic in dementia. Yeah, because that was what the DNA damage thing was on, because I went to that this afternoon, and that was one of the emerging topics of the conference. So I'm assuming that stress granules and lifestyle and modifiable risk factors are also kind of emerging topics. Yeah, that exactly. That was the other point out, she picked up on. Coming and out of the conference. So does that be does that interesting, because you said you were doing patient-specific mm -hmm. treatment. Is that targeting specific treatments to patients? Is where looking at stress granules something you can factor into that? Yeah, I think when we talk about kind of precision medicine, we are really trying to look at, um, identifying a different panel of biomarkers so we're looking at like 40 50 proteins in a patient to see whether treating them as six different drugs because there's kind of like a metabolic there's a cardiovascular there's so many different kind of areas that lead into dementia um, really trying to look at each one of those and seeing if we treat 
kind of all of them with lots of different drugs is that having a bit more of a benefit to a patient so instead of just yeah instead of just having kind of testing one alzheimer's drug it's testing multiple different drugs and in combinations in combinations yeah which is a lot easier to do when you use each patient as a control so um my my boss uh Stephen arnold he's doing a presentation that on tuesday morning i think um all about kind of per, um individual using a patient as their own control so putting them on the drug for six weeks taking them off the drug putting them on the drug taking them off and then using that as kind of uh, its own study so that's where you could really look at using multiple uh drugs has that kind of approach been used in other conditions before it's been used from what i know it's been used quite heavily in cancer research but less so in the dementia field and it's something that he and others are trying really trying to push a lot more but obviously a pharma company is not going to want to do that because yeah. it's very expensive but from a research point of view it could be really interesting. yeah but i'm just thinking you know the the baseline decline in dementia is so slow mm-hmm. that you know i, I it would be hard to know how much improvement you're seeing. It, yeah. You know, if you don't know what the trajectory of that individual is beforehand, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's probably a little bit different to something like cancer where we've got such robust biomarkers and we can yeah. we can see if we're seeing an immediate response from the drug. I just, I'd be interested to know, like, kind of from a methodological yeah, point so of view, how it from works. from kind of a methodological point of view, you use the biomarkers that you know already track with disease. So, well, to some extent, you'd obviously have your, your tau, your amyloid beta ones in there, which we know kind of map up with cognitive decline in a certain way. And then we can then use those plus others that have been used in other disorders um, that have been shown really promising as, like, for example, a marker of inflammation, how that then responds to different drugs. So I think it's one of those. It's, it's definitely something that's an emerging topic. And it would be interesting to see if it is an emerging topic next year at the conference where you're saying, OK, we're looking at lots of different areas of kind of a person's kind of disease profile and then really trying to track that down in more detail. Fascinating. I, I realise, of course, I did skip past asking you about your own presentations, but I'm going to adjust the programme round and we'll come to that at the end. Um, the other talk after Maria about the main themes was Marilyn Albert did the main uh, plenary t- uh, today. Did anybody, did you all see that? Did you stick around for? Yeah. So that was using, she had different longitudinal cohorts and then they were applying combinations of biomarkers, which I found really fascinating and really well presented in a way that even I, you know, I'm not scientific in that way, but I could understand Particularly, I thought it was when she was talking about NPTX2 combined with uh, PTAU and how you could see five years on that they could predict to increase prediction rates from 71% to 89%, which is obviously, even I understand those numbers are better. What, what did you pick up from that? Was there anything to highlight from that talk that you, you think might be of interest to people? I, I didn't really pick up the specifics in that way much more that, um, well, I guess one of the things I found really interesting was she kind of started the, the talk with, you know, the consensus in the field is that there's a long prodromal, it's a long prodromal phase that lasts decades and, um, and you know, people several decades before real, real, really having dementia have um, do have some subjective symptoms and obviously have the pathology. Um, but I... Even that part, I kind of, I questioned because I think, yes, I, I understand um, how well documented that is, but I think it's kind of a consensus in the in the US very much. But in the UK, speaking to clinicians, I just think there's a lot more 
um, uncertainty about how much we push that kind of prodromal preclinical diagnosis and whether it has any value. So I thought that was just a really interesting kind of geographic comparison that, you know, just the opening kind of let me set the scene line that she gave was very US centric. And I mm. think it's not actually the same across the world that we we necessarily frame the problem in the same way. Although the cohorts weren't all US, were there? There was an Australian cohort in there as well. Was that the only outside? That yeah, that really was the only non-US cohort yeah. in that yeah. population. What about you, James? Did you? you um, yeah, I think the few kind of things she pulled out at the end was that really wanting to predict at a patient individual level, which kind of maps up with what I was saying before yeah. about this kind of personalised medicine kind of based approach to really select patients into the clinical trials that they are going to do best in, which I think is a really interesting approach. Um, the other thing I found fascinating was around the when she was looking at tau deposits in patient brains and showing that you get them like 30 years old and that kind of blew my mind a little bit and that they can start the percentage increases as time goes on in the general population um, and then the similar stuff around the amyloid um, and how that changes from kind of diffuse plaques into neurotic plaques as age kind of progresses um, and the kind of need to identify new biomarkers to improve prediction. They talked about MPTX2, which is something we're looking at in our lab. Yeah. Um, it was really interesting. And then the kind of need to identify blood-based biomarkers as a real easy way of kind of tracking uh, disease instead of having to use CSF in order to kind of treat patients as early as possible, um, which is definitely the message coming out of the US more so. Um, there's obviously a big argument to be had around early diagnosis. How actually important is it? because um, we need to start treating patients in their 30s with these tau-targeting therapeutics. That's a, a question. That's a debate for another kind of... <laughs> well, uh, well, particularly if they've kind of moved on to more on the lifestyle factors. If there's... I mean, I know there's evidence already about different lifestyle factors having... But if you could start to actually put some put some real statistics to say, you know, right, okay, smoking contributes this many percent rather than it's this much, it's this much. I think, I think knowing having those early biomarkers might persuade that change of behavior because this is the problem isn't it we know that smoking eating badly and not exercising are going to contribute to alzheimer's and heart disease and diabetes and all the other things and people still do it so i i guess having more evidence helps yeah. well one of the studies that's been picked up by the newspapers today that was presented is um from the university of exeter uh, led by david llewellyn and that's showing that uh, it was a big study with um, 200,000 people from the UK Biobank and they were looking at the interplay of genetic risk factors and lifestyle risk factors and they were showing that even in people who have the highest genetic predisposition, look, I think they looked at about 20 genes, um, even in those people, like those that followed the healthiest lifestyle could reduce their risk by about 30%, Yeah, about a third. So I think it's it's starting to show that, you know, you can almost offset some of that genetic risk by making healthy lifestyle choices. That was actually, maybe you can answer the question because I, I thought this through. What are the genetic risk factors? Because there isn't, I mean, other than APOE4, there isn't an Alzheimer's gene, is there? So are these genetic risk factors in relation to kind of where or different health conditions and they contribute to it? So there's, there's been about 20 genes linked to Alzheimer's disease from GWAS studies, genetic yeah. wide association studies. So they they took out the ones that, you know, the rare familial inherited right, forms. Right, of, I understand. Uh, so they took out those genes that are known to kind of cause dementia in rare cases, and they were just using the risk genes. But there is a panel of about 20 genes that have been linked to 
to Alzheimer's. So they, and so they, they and use they were those. the ones that they looked and, you know, up from we, the biobank. Yeah, we don't necessarily know how much each one of those genes, like what, what their individual risk uh, would be, but they kind of just looked at how many of these genes did you have, and the more you had, the, more, the higher your score. Yeah, collectively. Actually, they the made a point there about you, you are, uh, sorry, James, highlighting about the amyloid uh, deposits in younger populations. So I'm going to come to Sarah now, because Sarah, you have, you probably have a good sense of quite a lot of cohorts, because that, that's one of the things that EPAD does is bring together cohorts, doesn't it? Yeah, so in EPAD, we've recruited from other research cohort studies, um, and then EPAD in itself is a cohort study as well. So there's just under 2,000 people now across Europe in EPAD, and we have biomarkers on all of them. So we've got amyloid and tau from spinal fluid for everyone, and we've got future biomarkers that we're looking so how, at. So how young do you go on your amyloid? Uh, so in EPAD, we go down to 50, and in prevent, um, some of our participants provide us with lumbar punctures and some do PET scans uh, and that goes down to age 40. 40. So I think as that data, that's all open access data as well, so as that becomes available, I think that's going to really add to um, what was being talked about in today's plenary session. It's a good cohort for you to get your hands on there, James. <laughs> you can make <laughs> use of that. Okay, fantastic. So that was Marilyn Albert and she was from the Mayo Clinic? As She was from the Mayo, wasn't she? Um, I've just got it here. No, she was from John Hopkins. John Hopkins, yes, <laughs> John Hopkins. You're right. Um, okay, so I'm gonna. So we touched on Exeter. There is there anything else to say about their presentation today? I think we we we've covered that, haven't we? Exeter mm-hmm. have have got quite a few talks actually. I think there's a bunch of posters yeah. as well. There seems to be quite a large <laughs> contingent from Exeter. Yeah presenting uh, over the conference um so what else did you see let's come to you first of all sarah what did you see today over and above the ones we've talked about um so i'm going to pick out a couple of the posters i saw um because i've been on the epad booth this afternoon so it's mainly in the poster sessions after the plenary um so one was kind of following on from that um looking at physical activity and amyloid in midlife so the first author is marth uh, Marta Mialoma, so she's from Barcelona Beta, and was looking at the Alpha cohort, which is um, kind of a sister cohort of Prevent under the Tribeca organization. Um, and she found that um, levels of physical activity over 150 minutes a week um, were associated with a lower amyloid burden on PET, but mainly in men rather than in women, which is quite an interesting finding. Um, so yeah i thought that one was really interesting that in their midlife cohort which is 45 to 75 they're again finding that physical activity at a moderate level is um associated with a lower risk of having amyloid on your pet scan Uh, and then another one which was from inserm in university of paris so law rouge sorry if i said that wrong uh was looking at visit to visit blood pressure changes so in within a person variability uh, and people who had more variability between their visits had um, worse cognitive decline and a higher risk of instant dementia. Um, I'm quite interested in looking at variability within the stress biomarkers that we've got within Prevent as well to see um, does variability within that person actually have a bigger impact rather than having very, very high blood pressure, very low. Um, is it the variability that's a risk? So I'm interested in translating some of those to mm. what we're looking at within the cortisol data that we've got as well. 
Interesting. There's been a lot of posters, actually. I, I did manage to have a little look around myself. There was a whole section on registers and recruitment and yeah. things like that that I was quite interested in because we haven't presented on Drawing Dementia Research data here, but they've done some of the same things we had and we'd have slightly <laughs> better results than they'd had. So I'm going to make a point of seeing, finding yeah. out what they'd done differently that, that we've had more success. There was quite a lot here this year about engaging with people who don't typically engage with the registers I noticed so a lot about how do you engage with ethnic minorities on registers there was a really interesting one on using peer-to-peer -peer videos so getting people um, from the communities you wanted to engage with appearing in a video so that people are actually seeing people like them as part of research and that seemed to work quite well whereas other outreach programs weren't engaging in the same way um, because, yeah, that's something we find we have a very right. heavily Caucasian population on any registry we have. Uh, over the first session, I met a, 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 um, a Astrid Suki Dicey, who we've actually persuaded to join tomorrow's podcast. And she's at uh, Washington looking at exactly the same thing as well about indigenous and hard to reach populations mm -hmm. engagement in not just in in research, but also just in, in the dementia carers mm -hmm. as well um what about you james um I, I really focused on just going to the talks today um but i did go to this really interesting emerging concept seminar series um that was on this afternoon called them's the breaks dna damage drives aging and dementia it was fascinating there was um four presenters and the one thing i really liked about it there was no questions during it and they just went back to back to back to back and then they did questions at the end. It was quite a nice way of doing it because it actually meant the speakers kept to time, um, <laughs> which is always a rare one. So I'll quickly name the four presenters. I'm going to really do a bad job with the first guy's name, but it's Jan, Jan from Erasmus uh, University. I'm not going to attempt his surname. Um, then there's Bess Frost, uh, San Antonio in Texas. Leonard Mucky, who is at University of California, um, which is in San Francisco. And then there was Carl Herrup, who is part of the Alzheimer's Disease Research Centre in Pittsburgh. And essentially, the, as I summarised in a tweet earlier today, in two lines, DNA is constantly damaged in all cell types and ageing is an accumulation of unrepaired DNA. DNA damage occurs at an individual level. Alzheimer's disease may occur at, at an individual cell level. So what they're trying to say is that each cell is kind of having its own story and that's what they really want to try and unpick in a little bit more detail which i found quite fascinating as a kind of idea that you're not looking at the whole brain you're looking at each cell what is happening to that cell each cell has a different type of alzheimer's disease kind of thing it was it it was a very interesting idea um it makes the problem sound a little bit interactive <laughs> yeah it does <laughs> but um yeah and they were like all of the answers and all the treatments are right here we just need to work out what on earth they are so um that was it was it was quite fascinating it, it really opened up more questions than really <laughs> gave answers um and they yeah there was a lot of quite yeah generic things looking at kind of dna damage how that can drive neurodegeneration in different models but they did show this fantastic video about kind of dietary restriction and that's potential role in uh preventing neurodegeneration they had this um, it was an end of one experiment but this little girl i can't remember her name for the life of me but what they were so what they were showing is that she had kind of this uh gene mutation that caused her to get lots of dna damage it was like seven years old struggling like to do any kind of speech movement everything and then they gave her dietary restriction and she got better obviously this is not a full <laughs> clinical trial so please don't try doing this at home but um there was some really kind of interesting preliminary work that I think needs some further evidence base and it got a lot of interest in the room but that was my kind of there's quite a lot of well there's quite a lot of work on 
dietary restriction and aging, but not then drawing it to neurodegeneration. So I guess maybe we need to bring that research community into yeah. the conference next year. Yes, I think that's a very sensible <laughs> idea because they're basically saying is that DNA damage is causing aging or it's like kind of part and parcel with it, but that dietary restriction can prevent that DNA damage. So there's the kind of hypothesis that they were suggesting. And it was interesting, you got a lot of like, I said interesting so many times, but lots of interest from the, the the people in the room as well. So, yeah, I had a lot of questions, more questions than answers leaving it. But I think that's what conferences are for. Did you ask them? Did you stand? No, did I, you I, take I ran, the mic? I, I ran away to get coffee. But, you know, it was one of those because <laughs> I think a lot of my questions are around, oh, can we look at potential biomarkers of DNA damage? I don't know if any of those exist, but I think that's something could be really important. Um do you know what and that is something we absolutely all the sessions I've been today the only people asking questions have been kind of more senior people I think the I did ask a question this morning though I'm just saying well done okay good because early career researchers kind of I think they have lots of questions written down and then a little bit too shy or worried about looking silly by asking a wrong question and don't actually stand up to to put those through and that's that's noticeable here because once again I said this last year Compared to coming to this conference seven, eight years ago, the number of early career researchers here compared to more senior people is hugely outnumbering now. I'd say young people under the age of 40 and early career researchers here is massive compared to the older people. It's not just old, older people. I'm picking on age there. That sounds bad. More senior people. It's the, you know, and I think it's through funding like Alzheimer's Society's increased funding and through Alzheimer's Association here that's brought all this new generation of researchers and new ideas like uh, from, from James and Sarah as well who bring in these, these things that we haven't thought about before. But I think you're right. Like there's early career researchers are definitely really well represented on the programme and, and I find that really encouraging when, you know, it's not professors presenting their PhD students work it's the PhD students yeah but I think the kind of uh the culture around the questions is just it's just a bit intimidating yeah um you know these are huge rooms and there's so many people and the pace of the talks are so fast that if you are you know earlier in your career and you maybe don't have you haven't been to five of these conferences and you don't know all the context you just feel a bit out of your depth sometimes and that's something we probably need to Maybe change you could use a fake name at the start <laughs> then if you get it wrong Anonymous. it's like god that person from, that person from i've been from... to some i went to the r&d forum and they just um they had an app and you just submitted it obviously there's so many rooms yeah, here yeah. that it's difficult but you just submitted it on there so it meant that even if you don't want to get up in front of everyone you could still get your question asked which was quite a nice way around it i thought yeah that's a good idea and there's been some nice studies that have shown that if an early career goes up first a lot of other early careers will mm-hmm. then feel it's okay to go up and it's the same with the, the sex of the person going up as well yeah like men genders. asking yeah. majority of the questions if a woman goes up first more women are uh, yeah. asked questions and I've been to conferences where I think Taras I, I remember Taras Spires Jones doing this once at a conference she was like the first question is going to be from an early career researcher I'm not accepting one from a professor mm-hmm. and I think some, sometimes someone doing that makes it so okay okay I should think of a question now yeah. I mean it puts you on the spot a little bit but I think that opens up the the room a lot better. So we we could throw that challenge out there for anybody that's here at the AIC conference over the next three days. Early career researchers, come on, be brave, stand up, ask that first question. And I did it, and I didn't fall apart, you know. <laughs> you <laughs> and survived. yeah, I survived. And the guy, I, I I met him last year, and he was he came up to me after and said, "Oh, it's a good question," and it it helps a lot because it kind of 
can help build, build it, those networks a little bit. Absolutely does. I think it's, you know, as we talk about all the time, these conferences are a fantastic opportunity to network and meet people and don't be afraid, talk to people, do approach speakers afterwards. And it's not just this conference, of course, it's it's all the other ones we see too. So I, I missed earlier, we've got a couple of minutes left. Um, who, Sarah, are you presenting this week, your own work? What are you? I have a poster on Tuesday. Um, so it's some work I did with Actinogen, uh, who are an Australian pharmaceutical company, and it was just prior to my PhD. So we were looking at 11-beta um, hydroxysteroid dehydrogenase type 1 inhibitors, which is a drug class that um, acts to um, reduce the change from cortisone, which is inactive to cortisol. Um, and so we were doing a systematic review to see uh, what areas in animals has this been studied and in what areas in humans. Um, and the main findings of it were um, that mainly from within animals, um, Alzheimer's is a big area of interest for these inhibitors. Um, obesity, diabetes and metabolic diseases are really big areas and they've moved to human trials as well as have some of the Alzheimer's drugs um, and psychiatric disorders, particularly um, depression and anxiety. So I think it's a really interesting area to look at in terms of what I'm interested in in my PhD that it could be relevant for treating Alzheimer's disease, but it also could be relevant for some of the diseases that we know are risk factors for Alzheimer's disease as well. So yeah. I think there's a potential there to explore them as preventative. So have you already presented that or is that for... It's on Tuesday. That's on Tuesday. Yeah. And it, sorry, did you say... It's a poster. It's a poster. Yeah. So what's your poster number? I think it's number three. It's oh. in the therapeutics. So it's one of the very first. Okay, rows. so make a point of going and seeing uh, Sarah's poster on Tuesday if you're here at the conference. And James... I just found the photo of my uh, poster presentation number just because I forgot yes. to ask. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm doing the, the, the doing presenting a poster on my research for my PhD. So hopefully it'll be my last time doing that. But it's been nice to kind of put that to bed a little bit. And hopefully more work is going on in my old lab. But um, So yeah, my title is Proteolytic Cleavage of Tau in Corticobasal Regeneration and Progressive Supernuclear Palsy Pathogenesis. So these is basically looking at one of the post-translation modifications of tau in two of these quite rare forms of dementia. Um, and I'll be presenting that on Wednesday. My poster number is 524. And I will be around all day. So feel free to come and take a look if you are here at the conference and you're listening to this podcast. If not, I'm very sorry. But yeah, ask me on Twitter and I'll be able to send it well, to you. Well, we'll come to that. I was going to, sorry, Claire, how about, you're not presenting. No, no, so. I'm not presenting, but I just wanted to say. Um, Alzheimer's Association, Alzheimer's Society and several other funders are um, having a reception for early career researchers on Wednesday evening, 6 till 8 at the Intercontinental Hotel. So any early career researchers listening to this, come along and, and come and meet us. Wednesday, 6 till 8. Wednesday, 6 till 8 at Can the Intercontinental. Can I give you some, some leaflets as well on our podcast and website of to course. get them all to come yeah. to? <laughs> because we list all that we should say at our website. We have all the funding opportunities from Alzheimer's Society and Alzheimer's Research UK and other charities, uh, not just UK-based research uh funding opportunities either but from elsewhere around the world is listed on our website at dementiaresearcher.nihr.ac.uk well thank you very much everybody that's all we've got time for and if i'm honest we're keen to wrap up because tonight's the welcome evening which is at the it's at the universal studios 
And we're all excited to go to Universal Studios. Harry Potter ride, definitely. Harry Potter, that's all I've heard all day, Harry Potter. (laughs) That's riding a broomstick. But but honestly, do you know if it's, is it a scary ride? Because I'm not like big on on scary rides. To be fair, that's why I want to do that one. Because I think there's a Jaws one and I'm not keen on that. But Harry Potter, how scary can it be? I don't know. If it's roller coaster based, I'm not really into it. But if it's kind of, woohoo, look, VR, isn't it? wonderful to embrace it that i'm all up for that but i'm not <laughs> i think there's a show that you can watch at like there's 9 a show. <laughs> that's about your level of excitement oh, Adam. Show you could go to bed early with the kids <laughs> it's a dark art show though oh, okay well um i'm not going to confess to having brought my wand with me but uh so thank you very much to our panelists sarah uh, James and Claire um, listeners can uh, get in touch with all our, pe- uh, our panellists today via uh, Twitter so Sarah what's your Twitter address? at Gregory Sarah uh, James at Tweet with Quinn but I'm going to plug our new lab Twitter which is at true so that's A-C-T-R-U underscore M-G-H okay as well uh, Claire um, at C-A Walton fantastic okay so again time to uh, enter this podcast uh thank you very much for joining us today we'll be back tomorrow as well with um, more panelists talking about day two please remember to subscribe and leave a review on our podcast uh through soundcloud itunes and on spotify and um again um i think you can probably pick up on on more of the conference highlights uh looking on twitter using the hashtag aaic19 um we'll give you more of a view and we'll be back tomorrow with day two thank you very much This was a podcast brought to you by Dementia Researcher. Everything you need in one place. Register today at dementiaresearcher.nihr.ac.uk.